Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, and welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. We are your hosts. I'm Kim France. And I'm Jen Romolini. And Jen, I miss you. I miss you. You were here and I got to see you and now you're gone and you're back there. I miss you too. And I'm just back in, I was like in full like just full bloom, delight, like just like I was so happy. And like, you know, those, those phases of life just don't last. They just yeah. don't, they don't last. And I'm, I'm really just having a fucking shit week. Like not to just start it off. I think we did it. We did a listener survey of one thing. People were like, they could bitch a little less. <laughs> <laughs> I know that was a, that these, the listener survey was sort of all over the place in terms of what people <laughs> like, but certain points came through very clearly. And one of them was that that we bitch a lot. I'm just having one of those weeks of like seeing my child's future therapy sessions. Like just, <laughs> like, just being like, oh God, I suck at this. Why did I, why was I like having the best intentions and like trying to talk to this 13 year old, almost 13 year old about like just calmly and then just having, just having it all go south and just like, you know, I'm, sorry, I'm just going to bitch. You're my friend and we're doing this. I, I, I'm like, I'm scared about work. I'm in between projects and I'm scared about work and I'm scared about money. And then I had a friend tell me, um, a friend is, is sick today. And I'm just like, God, I'm having one of those. It's really hard to be a grown up days. 
Whereas yeah. I had had like three weeks of, oh, it's great to be a grown up, you know, like it's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I know because you finished, you handed in your revise of the book and then you flew to New York and we did the live event and then we had the wedding and then we just went back to our lives. And then you got this horrible news and, you know, add that to this, you know, stress that we all feel about everyday things. It's just a lot, you know, it's just, it's just. And that's what life is. It's just this up and down. And it's like, that's why you need to meditate. And that's why you need to not react. And that's why you need to just like, kind of watch it like a river because it's going to, it's the, 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 the attaching to the pleasure is as bad as attaching to the pain. I mean, we fucking know this, this is the fundamentals of Buddhism and it's just, it's hard to remember. And so when I initially got back and like shit was hitting the fan all over the place, I was like, oh, maybe I'll have a drink never fucking helps anything. Oh, maybe I'll just numb out and smoke a joint. I'll watch too much TV. I'll be on my phone for 400 hours. I'll basically live inside Instagram, like, (laughs) you know, and it's like, none of this shit helps. And then one morning you have to be like, okay, am I ready to actually be a present adult and just face this stuff and, and accept what's happening? You know, it's all acceptance. It's all acceptance. So much of it. Not, you know, and accepting doesn't mean like accepting and welcoming. It just means accepting and moving on from there. And observing. It's just that thing that the, the, the ultimate thing is to be able to observe and not react because in, I was reading something because, you know, I'm reading a lot about teenage brains and, you know, the amygdala and, you know, stress hormones and everything. And I think it takes I read something that takes 15 to 20 minutes for the amygdala to reset after, you know, after having a very big reaction, right? After getting dysregulated Mm -hmm. and just taking that break and just knowing that it's, this situation is going to feel very different in, you know, sometimes the situation feels different in five minutes. Like I think somebody told me that an emotion takes two minutes. If you can live through, if you can be Mm -hmm. remain calm for two minutes, an emotion only takes, I ever say this on the podcast? I don't know. No, I mean, it's the same thing they tell recovering addicts that, um, you know, cravings are temporary cravings last an average of like, you know, seconds. And if you can get through it, right. That's the thing. Right. Yeah, totally. And I think that's what it is. And, you know, I came back, there's a line in the wire that I love, which is, uh, you want it to be one way, but it's the other way. (laughs) (laughs) I came back, I I think I forget who it is who says it in the wire. It's like, I forget which character, but I came back and I was like, oh man, I want it to be one way and it is another way, you know? (laughs) But that's, I mean, that is about acceptance too. It's just like that moment when you realize what's so brilliant about that line. Like, here's the problem. It's like snakes on a plane. Here's the whole problem. (laughs) Yes. Here's the whole problem. Exactly. Here's the whole problem. And it's just being like, all right, well, today wasn't great. Who knows what tomorrow will bring? I'm not going to be attached to either. I'm just out here living (laughs) (laughs) with jazz hands. I'm giving you jazz hands right now. They can't see, but yes, I'm giving you (laughs) jazz hands. (laughs) 
So a couple of housekeeping things. We are, we are uh, putting a special, we are starting to put regular special ad-free episodes on Patreon. So join us over on Patreon, patreon.com. Somebody in the uh, survey said that I say slash the wrong way. I'm just going to say slash. I don't know if it's backslash or forward slash. It's patreon.com slash everything is fine. If you want to join us over there, we're going to be doing um, special themed episodes and um there will be one coming next week, this week. Um, and we have a great show today, too. Yeah, yeah, really good show. But wait, what's going on with you? I, you know, I'm settling in. I had like an exciting week, too. Like, you know, it was bookended by like, you know, the live episode and the wedding. And then there were like people around. So that was exciting. And then yes. there was the thing that it was in the Times. So then there was like, it was a famous day. I had a famous day because- Oh my God, right. You had a famous day. It was in, not only was it online, it was in the style section. It was like a whole, val- you were the head of vowels. It was in the entire physical, it was the entire piece. It was almost a whole page. And I could not find a New York Times to save my life in Brownstone, Brooklyn. Could not find a New York Times. It was crazy. So I still haven't seen it. Uh, yeah, I'll send it to you. Um, and I'm going to send it to you. I have it saved for you like a, like an old grandmother. Um, <laughs> I mean, the best, the best thing about it, the best thing about being in the Times, because I was really afraid it was like a big kick me sign that we were just going to get made fun of. And the best thing was the most wonderfully random assortment of people from my past got in touch with me. Oh, that's so nice. That's it was so really nice. nice. Like there were a few people where I was like, okay, maybe a little hurt that person didn't reach out, but it was so overwhelmed by like the su- delight and surprise of like yeah. people who reached out who I hadn't heard from in, you know, decades in some cases. Yeah. It was like, a, it was like unwrapping, like a, I, I suspect it was like unwrapping like a wedding present after the wedding because it was like the wedding yeah. had been the week before, but then here this thing was, it was exciting. It's exciting. And I have to say, I did all, all the work I've been doing on body acceptance really helped when so- several of the photos made me look like I had multiple chins. You know what? I thought you looked beautiful. And in fact, on our private Facebook group, which if you haven't joined, you you can join, people were like, Kim, I'd never seen a picture of you before. You're so beautiful. That was nice. And also... You look fucking young. I was looking at you and I was like, <laughs> bitch, you are almost 60. How is your face so youthful? It's ridiculous. You know, two reasons. Two reasons. I have oily skin. Sure. <laughs> oily skin has helped. And two, and I really think this is a big part of it, the not having children. <laughs> I'm sorry. I think that's a big part of it. How can I, 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 how can I think anything else? There's no other explanation for it. I mean, it's true. Last night or two nights ago when I had had this huge fight with my kid and I was just in the kitchen like midnight eating like dark chocolate, <laughs> like worst. just fucking just stressed out, like dried up, like crying. Like I was like, <laughs> yes, this is probably contributing to my aging for sure. <laughs> well, I do. I mean, I have those activities. Last yes. night, actually, I woke up in the morning and I have a terrible habit, which is that I, I will eat in bed. Oh, <laughs> I have never had a problem with eating in bed. Whatever like taboo or whatever exists for most people around eating in bed doesn't exist for me. I find it delightful to eat in bed. So last night in the middle of the night, I woke up and I went downstairs and I got some pop chips. No. And I have this, I I hardly even remember just like (laughs) eating them all. And I woke up in the morning and there was like a semicircle spray of pop chip debris on the floor. No. (laughs) I had to vacuum it up. It was so awful. 
<laughs> oh my God. I love that you are a bed eater. That is just like so indulgent. It's just like delicious. I can't. do it. Two of the best things you can do together. Oh my God. Oh my God. So I've been, there were a sale on like cheese puffs and I am really like a fucking <laughs> cheese curl person. And like my husband bought like out the store. So I like went into our pantry and I was like, why are there like 18 bags of cheese? And I just like been eating them. It's just like, and it's the shovel. It's the total yep. shovel. Or two hands. Yeah. It's, it's two hands. <laughs> Oh, this is making me feel better. Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. All right. We have a great show that is not funny and is not about two-handed eating um, with the amazing author, Nicole Chung. Her book is so beautiful. It's a, yeah. it's a sad book, but it's a lovely, lovely book. It's a lovely ride. And it's about a lot of important things. It's kind of like, I wanted to say to her, but I was afraid I sound stupid, but I don't mind sounding stupid to you and all of our listeners. Yes. It's like a self-help book that's not a self-help book in some ways. That's interesting. That is interesting. I don't think that's stupid at all. I think that's interesting. What, what's cool about it is she's right. She lays out all of these things about the healthcare system, about the death of two parents, about what happened during the pandemic to all of us, but it is not, um, it is not political. It is not a polemic. It is it is just the facts of her story that really bring to light a lot of these issues. And I think a lot of people are going to relate to her and relate to it. And like I said to her, I think it's a bomb. And I think it will be a bomb for a lot of people who have gone through similar situations with yeah. caretaking and um, caretaking of a parent and the, the death of a parent. It's such a profound experience. Losing your mother, I think, is a really profound experience for people and your father, but your mother, really, for, yeah. for women, you know. All right, so let's get into it. Our guest today is Nicole Chung. Nicole is the author of the best-selling memoirs, All You Can Ever Know, which came out in 2018, and her most recent book, A Living Remedy, which came out last month. Nicole's a contributing writer to The Atlantic, Time Magazine, and Slate. Her writing has also appeared in The New York Times, The New York Times Magazine, The Guardian, and many others. Welcome, Nicole. Hi. Hi. It's so good to be here. <laughs> it's very good to have you. Um, First off, congratulations on A Living Remedy. It's this gorgeous, if harrowing story about family and grief, which I really loved. I told you I just finished it yesterday. I was crying on like page five. It's a really moving story, beautifully told. Thank you Can so you, much. You're so welcome. And it's a major accomplishment. Can you tell listeners um, who don't know this story how it came to be? Yeah, so I was actually... Um... It was between my hardcover and paperback tours for All You Can Ever Know that I started to think about writing about grief. Um, and it was partly because, so when my father died, he died in January 2018. My book came out that October. And as always, your publisher wants you to pitch and publish essays around the time your book comes out. And, you know, what had just happened in my life? I was, I was dealing with very fresh grief. Um, and I thought, let me try to write a little bit about this. It's very different from my book, obviously, my first book, All You Can Ever Know, but but connected because of the people, because of those relationships. Um, and so I wrote just a couple of pieces about grieving for my father and and uh, sort of learning learning a new role as my mother's daughter um, in the wake of his loss. And 
it's hard to say it felt it felt good, uh, but it was a new experience for me writing about grief, especially grief that was so raw and recent. That, that's, um, I actually want to ask about that. Sorry to interrupt, but sure. it oh. seems like the conventional wisdom is after a big thing, you know, after a big life altering thing happens, if you're going to write about it, you let it marinate a little. But you didn't do that at all. You went right into it. Well, I actually did, except for those couple of essays, which were sort of like, I don't know, early like test balloons in, in seeing how it felt to write about grief. Um, I didn't quite jump right into it. Like, so um, I started thinking about whether or not there might be some sort of book length project in writing about grief. And if so, like, what could I really add to the the huge number of books that are already out there dealing with it? Um, and something I kept coming back to, and especially in discussions with my mom were, you know, we were both dealing with like our regret and I guess some guilt about ways we wish we could have helped my dad more. You know, as I write in the book, my father's death was really sped by uh, financial precarity and lack of access to healthcare for years. Um, he died at 67 and neither my mother nor I believed that that was inevitable. You know, like despite his illnesses, we, we both felt that if he had gotten the help and, and care he needed, earlier, you know, in the decades leading up to his death, that perhaps we wouldn't have lost him so early. And we were also both grappling with like our guilt over what we wished we had been able to do for him. And I hadn't read so many grief books or grief stories that really took that head on, that sort of tackled it from uh, you know, both the the socioeconomic like class issues and also the lack of health care. Also, not just the healthcare system, but the multiple points at which my parents tried and were unable to access the safety net um, and available assistance. And it just felt like something that could be important, perhaps, or meaningful and could resonate with people because it is the experience of so many American families. Right. Yes. Um, and so that was when I started to think, perhaps, you know, this is a book, but I didn't actually, you know, even sell it till a good year and a half after he passed away. Um and then just a few months after I sold A Living Remedy, uh, which was then untitled, my mother got a terminal cancer diagnosis. And of course, everything changed for both yeah. of us. Um, and she started hospice care as the first coronavirus cases were being reported in the US. And so everything changed for everybody. And at that point, I was very much not writing um, for, for months, not really working in earnest on the book. And when I started started over again, really from the beginning, about six months after her death, um, I, I sort of rewrote the whole thing from scratch um, during the pandemic. So that was kind of the evolution of this particular project. And it sounds like very, you know, it sounds strange to talk about it in this way from like a work or a craft perspective because of the upheaval of these events, like yes. the, the, just the trauma of them. Um, but I did find when I was able to get back to writing that it felt um, it felt urgent to me. You know, I never know words like important and necessary get thrown around a lot in publishing. And I'm, to be honest, like, I'm never sure what they mean. But to me, the work of this project did feel urgent. And I, I knew there were things I wanted to write about. Um, if I could let the book be what it needed to be, I just kind of hoped it would, would matter to some people again, who'd found themselves in similar circumstances, because I know that like so many people have. And as for writing about something when it was so fresh, you know, it's true that that was very new to me. Um, it, I was, I was, by the time I started really working on it again, I was, you know, two and a half, three years past my father's death, but like only months past my mother's. Yeah. And um, it was very different from my first book, which where I was writing about 
to me what I what I thought were very settled matters um, with my adoption. Not that that's not always shifting and changing as I get older and those relationships change, but I will say like not a lot and all you can ever know surprised me. Right. Um, and I think I always sort of knew where it was going. And because of the uh, just the fact that I was writing about such recent events or and writing about grief as I lived through it uh, and grappling with these issues in real time, um, I think a living remedy feels a lot more uh, present and a lot more urgent, which I don't mean as a knock on my first book, but like the writing of it and what it demanded of me, um, it was a very different kind of book. Well, and it's very, it's very raw. The writing is, is very raw. You can feel how you can feel you're there with you. Right. Was that cathartic for you? Was this, was this, did this, do you think writing this book helped you process this grief? Um, for me, writing books or even essays, it doesn't tend to be cathartic or like therapeutic. I will say like, it's more like when I could actually work on the book again. Um, and not just like, jot notes to myself or journal, which I think are, are very, that can be more therapeutic, cathartic writing, you know, the writing that nobody sees. Um, that's kind of where I tend to work through things for myself. But by the time I'm writing for publication and and I'm, I'm already thinking about readers, which isn't the same as writing just for them, but like, I mean, I take the responsibility of what is there for readers to take with them, like to hold on to what will make them feel and think about their own lives. Um, what will matter to them? That is very much a question that's always like in my mind when I'm writing something I know will be published. So at that point, it can't quite be catharsis for me. So when I was working on this book, I knew, okay, I've done, I'm doing a little bit better if I'm actually able to write this and think about those things. Um, And I will say I took like six months off from working on it after my mother's death. And even before then, I mean, probably... (laughs) Probably the four or five months prior to that, even um, when she was dying, I was very much not focused on this. You know, I was just focused on her and focused on my family and like everybody else trying to then get through the, the early days of yeah. the pandemic. Yeah. You know, so um, it was probably like a year or even a little bit more where it was kind of always there in the back of my mind, but it was not not like I could work on it actively. Right. So there was too much going. Like I knew I was living through things that I would probably try to write about. But you were living the story. I mean, the yeah. story was unfolding as you were right. You were living it, right? And it was so deeply painful that I honestly, there were times I didn't know if I'd ever be able to get back yeah. to it. You know, I, I did not, I did not widely share this, <laughs> but I, yeah, I course. really had, I really had serious doubts at many points. Like, will I ever be able to? confront this and and write about it and write about it in a way that isn't just like raw or uncontrolled but is like going to actually matter to other people you know right right um, and so I was I really just had to wait and and I started to get back into it I think in earnest like I said about six months after my mother died was when I could pick it up again well I, I wonder if I wonder if sorry Kim just one more on this one I just wonder yes. because writing writing about pain, like I, I know from writing my own memoir about trauma, it was, it's like swimming through mud. Like, I also wonder if it wasn't cathartic because that is journaling. You're absolutely right about that. Cause there's a remove to craft, especially if you've been an editor, like you kind of, you, you, you know, this has to be for publication. This isn't just a, I'm, I'm bleeding on the page. Right. I did it extend the depths of your grief writing about it. Do you know what I mean? Like, were you in the hole with it? Because it's so um, exhausting writing about your own pain. 
It, I mean, it was at times exhausting. I don't, that's a really good question. I can see how it might have in some cases. I think it was such a strange time. You remember like 2020 into 2021 yeah. pre-vaccine. My kids were home doing Zoom school all the time. Um, my husband was working partly from home, partly at work, and I was working entirely from home, like full time. Um, like it was just not a, I mean, of course it felt like swimming through mud, but like, that's just how life felt then, you know? Right. And it's hard to tell, like in that time period, how much was writing about like this grief and how much was just grieving and how much was pandemic life. Um, I will say like, when I look back on this writing process, of course, there were times where I was like, this is going to kill me. Like, I cannot do this. Um, This is really hard. Sometimes I would like weep while writing, which I'm, you know, not prone to doing normally. Um, But there's just a couple of scenes in particular where like, I just like bawled while writing them and then Mm. needed to take like a big break after before I could get back into the book. Um, But overall, like what I will remember most from writing this book is like, I entered this sort of meditative state, I think, while writing a lot of it. I I remember feeling like very free and unencumbered sometimes, um, which isn't to say I didn't feel the pressure because, of course, you always do feel that pressure. But I really sometimes didn't know where it was going or how I would write it. I had to trust myself a lot and give myself grace and sort of develop a new relationship to my work and my writing in order to even attempt, let alone finish this book. Because, and I write a little bit about this, I've always been a just sort of push through, like yeah. nose to the grindstone kind of person. It's how I've been my whole life. And I'm not like bragging, I don't think it's that healthy. Like, um, but I realized fairly early on in the rewriting process, this book was not going to uh, appear in that fashion. I could have written a book maybe that way, but it would not have been this book. And it wouldn't have been the book I think I needed it to be. Um, And so I really had to learn patience and I had to learn to respect my grief and my limitations. I had to just kind of recognize that it was going to take the time it was going to take. And I'll stress this was a privilege because I had a very understanding and patient editor. Right. Um, But it was also me realizing maybe it's not the end of the world if you ask for a little extension. Right. maybe this book will just be done when it's done. And, and I, I mean, I feel really fortunate that I was able to realize that and that my publishing team was so supportive because of course, another team could have been like, no, you have a contract, you have a deadline. This is when you deliver. Um, and as it was, I, you know, once I actually got going again, it it didn't take, (laughs) it didn't take the five years I thought it might take at one point, but, um, you know, it was definitely like a process. And I finally, I finally just learned like, I need more, I just need more time and I need to give myself grace and, and see where this is leading me. So I really appreciate the freedom I felt looking back on it. I I hope I can approach future projects that way because it was very freeing. You know, it was kind of a revelation to realize, oh, I can like work in a different way. Um, And sometimes that is what the work needs. Yeah. And it's not an emergency, even though, even though other people will make you think things are emergency, like nothing is really an emergency unless you're like performing like heart surgery, you know, it's like, it's, it's not, nothing is, there's no emergencies in publishing is, is my opinion. Like that's a, that's what I've come to Kim. Um, I, you, I read it. I read something you said in an interview that you think this is a book 
that that people can move forward with. And I'm I'm wondering what you meant by that and how you accomplished that. Um, I mean, I think it was it was probably one of those questions about you know what do I hope people get from the book, and it might have been one of my ways of saying I think as an author it's very hard to be prescriptive when you write something for publication like. Um, the more I do this, the more convinced I am that like it's not my particular place to say what someone has to get from a, a, something that I write, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I, I wrote a book that I hoped would keep people company, I suppose, in their grief or in some of their feelings about being, let's say, part of the sandwich generation, you know, trying to care for elders and care for children or dependents and um, or or people who are sort of grappling with what it means uh, you know, to have achieved some level of class mobility that their that their family might not have enjoyed, um, you know, the, just and just people um, wrestling with that gap between what you want to do for your family, your loved ones, and what is sometimes possible, you know, whether it's in terms of physical presence or practical support. So I hoped that the book would would help those people feel seen and keep them company in that way, and yes, give them something maybe to hold on to or to move forward with. As you'll note, like the, it's not like everything's neatly tied up in a bow at the end. And I wasn't trying to like end on some deeply inspirational message. I don't, I don't think that's quite how grief works, you grief know, it doesn't end, right? It, it just doesn't. doesn't end. But, but like, I wanted to be able to kind of gesture at least at like a forward looking, um, like a forward looking momentum. I wanted to be able to, to say, look, like it just, this is just one story, but this is where I am. And this is how, I'm starting to look forward, move forward. And, you know, I hope if, if that's useful to people where they are, then, you know, I'll feel good about that. So it's, I don't know, it's less like a, a beacon to follow and more of just like, this is, this is one example, I suppose. And yours, if you're grieving, will probably look very different, you know, but this is what I'm remembering. And this is what continuing to live means to me. Let's take a quick break from some ads. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And we're back! 
one of the things in the book, I think the book is about grief in many forms. And one thing you really touch on that I don't see people talk about a lot is the grief of class ascension. So when you are a child who, uh, you know, shifts class from your parents, I come from working class people, there's a grief in terms of that you can't bring them with you, that lost time if you move far away, that they don't understand what your life is. And I, I, I felt you throughout the book grieving that too, in terms of, you know, I had moved across the country to pursue my dreams. I lived a very different life than my parents did. All they wanted out of me was more time. I had ascended, but I couldn't actually help them as much financially as I wanted to. Can you talk about the the sort of the, the class struggle of the book? Because I, I, I felt that very profoundly. I thought it was really beautifully laid out. Thank you. And I will say that was the part of the book that really terrified me to write. I um, have not really written in this space before. And it was just a very daunting task. I think for a long time, I was like, well, this is not my place because I have class and educational privilege now. You know, I was sort of like, you know, this, I don't know. I, I wasn't quite sure what I had to contribute to it until, until like the way my mother and I lost my father sort of brought all that like into very sharp relief, you know, like, and the sense of helplessness I felt, um, you know, here I am and I have, I don't know, done what I was supposed to, what they wanted. I've like gotten educated and I've like, quote unquote, achieved. And still like, I was not able to save my father, you know, and I grew up very much like aware on the one hand of my family's struggles, you know, the fact that it was, we did not have quite enough ever to, for my parents to not worry um, and that things got significantly worse once I got to high school and, and beyond. Um, and explain, parents, explain why. So your parents, how, explain what your parents did and what happened, sort of what their, what their financial journey was. Cause I think it's, I think it's interesting and I think it's very relatable. Um, so my parents were, uh, you know, like hardworking, working class people. My father worked in restaurants most of my childhood and my mother, um, was, when I was very young, a respiratory therapist, but then left that field and had a series of like less stable um, jobs, sometimes working in like medical offices, doing like billing sometimes. Um, like I remember her working in my middle school cafeteria. I remember her doing a brief stint cleaning houses. I mean, yeah. she did a lot of different things. They were work hard trying to make ends meet people basically. And it, it mostly worked when I was younger. But then when I was a freshman in high school, my mother got breast cancer. And um, we were always an uninsured or underinsured family, like so many in this country. Um, and right after she had her mastectomy, my father lost his job. And at that point, we lost health insurance and we wouldn't have it again. I mean, like I, I was insured again when I went to college because my university required all students to carry health insurance. Um, but my parents were then uninsured for years after that point. My mother's medical issues and my father's kind of continued throughout my high school years. And so, I mean, medical debt just kept accruing and, and other types of debt too, because there just wasn't enough to meet right. like the need. I wasn't really aware of this in that they were not including me in like financial discussions. I think they didn't want to worry me. I think they believed it was none of my business, like fair, but I saw signs, right? Like suddenly like I have a part-time job, which is fine. Lots of kids do, but I'm paying for my clothes, my shoes, my school lunches, like my AP exam fees, my college application fees, my graduation gown, like all of these things that like my peers' parents were mostly covering for them to some degree. Like I was sort of on my own. Um, 
so I, I sort of was trying to deduce or infer from what was actually happening without being told explicitly, you know, yeah. in words, which I think is really common to how a lot of people learn about about money, about class, about their family situation in the world. It's not really what we're told. It's what we experience. It's like what we observe. So that was like my growing awareness, but I didn't really have specifics. And it would be, I write about this in the book, but it would be years before I found my first FAFSA. Um, and I looked back at it and realized like how very low our family income was, like significantly less than my freshman year of college cost. And it just, I hadn't really ever realized like what we were going through at that time because we were all just kind of trying to, you know, do what we needed to do and survive. And I was so focused on getting out. I did know enough to know, okay, I'm going to have to help my parents somehow. Like once I get an education, once I have a career, like I was already always looking back over my shoulder thinking like, I'm their only child. This is on me. Right. And thinking maybe I'm their retirement plan. I it just kind of didn't occur to me because I think I, you know, being young and healthy myself at the time, I didn't know a lot about like how health insurance works. Right. Or, uh, I didn't really think about it when we had it or didn't have it or like the years I didn't go to the doctor or the dentist, like just wasn't something I thought a whole lot about at that age. You know, it'd be many years before I just kind of fully realized that, I was not going to, short of earning millions, I was not going to be able to like pay for their medical care right. myself. Um, and I also didn't know that when push came to shove, when they finally kind of grit their teeth and applied for different forms of assistance, or like my father applied for disability, I mean, they were denied everything, everything that they they had finally finally kind of humbled themselves to ask for. So that was why the situation was sort of steadily worsening as my, you know as my parents approached their 60s it wasn't just that moment of crisis and those years of unemployment it was like the two three decades before that when they never really had all of the resources or the support that they needed it's just they were at an age and my father was at a point in his health his medical journey when um they could not they just could not get by without those things any longer yeah how did you get past rage about all of this well, I don't think I have. No, I don't think I, I will ever like fully like get past it. And to some degree, just like naming it and facing it was something. At least it helped me a little bit with the huge amount of self-blame I was dealing yeah. with after my father died. Like I was just deeply depressed after after he died. And I um I just remember feeling it's like you were saying, Jen, I knew all they wanted was more time, you know, and more time with me and my family. And it was just such a hard thing to do. Yeah. So, you know, I felt I'd failed them, but really him in like these in multiple ways. And it, it just took a while to to allow myself to see that I wasn't responsible for what they were up against. Like I wasn't responsible for these failing structures. But of course, like one of the features of these systemic failures is that we are made to feel responsible, like personally yeah. responsible. Like it's all on us. And when we shock are not expert navigators or just cannot get through like the maze yeah. <laughs> um, of these systems that really weren't built to serve us and that don't serve us well, um, even the privileged, right? I mean, what a disaster are a lot of our private health insurance plans are like, uh, that's, and that's your best case scenario in a lot of cases here. Um, like I just, it took, it took a while, but I think I realized in trying to reassure my mother, actually, that it was not her fault. I think eventually I began to see like, well, it's probably, it's not mine either. Like 
they were just up against so much that they shouldn't have been. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to say like, oh, everything's good and I've forgiven myself. Like those years, I won't get those back with my father. But, you know, it has helped me direct my rage at least, like away from myself and sort of at these at these systems where they belong. And at the same time, you know, I didn't necessarily want to write a book that was like a polemic. I mean, I think... I think, and I hope people agree, like presenting the facts yes. and how they affected us as they affect so many American families, I think it's pretty damning in and of itself, just looking at the facts. And so, you know, that was another reason I kind of wanted to to write this and face these, these things head on. Yeah. I, I don't know. It wasn't something I saw a, a great deal of in, in literature. And I think, I think a story can be one way in, or at least another way in to thinking about these issues. What what did you learn about yourself when you were working on this book? You know, back to what I said before, I think I really had to confront and learn to accept like my own limitations and and weaknesses. It was uh and just recognize like I'm actually not a robot and I can't always just force myself to work or in this case force myself to write. Um I don't know, I think I think a lot of what I learned was to to really trust myself more as a writer and to show myself a little bit more care. And it sounds, I know it sounds a little bit trite, but these lessons were very, very hard won and kind of late in coming for me, I have to say. Um, and these are lessons of grief as well. I, I really did keep pushing myself after my father died. Um, all you can ever know was due to my publisher the week after he passed. Mm. And I remember sitting there and just pushing through it and hitting send and then going to pack for his funeral. I couldn't believe um, when I read that in the book. I, I related to it so much and I couldn't believe that you were just, you had that like, because I have I have that too, that good girl, not going to blow a deadline, workaholism, just the whole thing. I really didn't. I really didn't realize back then that everybody misses their deadlines in publishing. Yes. And I just, and like things were moving. I had a pub date set. We were talking about a cover reveal. I was just like, I mean, it's this or like what? We moved the book to another season. And I, I also just couldn't fathom like having it hanging over me. You know, like when I wrote about that, it's true. Like I, I just couldn't imagine coming back from his funeral and working on it either, you know? And I thought, well, I'm still, this is like how, I don't know. Some part of my brain realized you are still in shock. Like yeah. this loss has not hit you yet. Yeah. So just get through the last few pages of this manuscript, like get it sent and then you don't have to think about it and you can grieve. I don't think that's good or healthy. I'm just no. saying like, that's what I did. But not good and, or healthy to be me either. A person who blows through every deadline. That is yeah. You blow. Kim blows every deadline. <laughs> no, but no. Yeah. But Nicole, it's interesting because this is really interesting because I think it's so admirable your changing relationship with workaholism because it, you've had a lot of insecurity around you watching your parents insecurity. Publishing is such a fucking rough game. And to actually say, no, I have to change this relationship with work. I, I think that's also sort of a subtext in the book. I it don't is. know if you've, yeah, right. I mean, you've changed your relationship with workaholism, which is really brave in this moment in your life when you've seen, you know, I, I use it as a coping mechanism. I think that you did too. Just throw yourself into work, throw yourself into work. So talk more about that. 
I honestly don't know that I was ever a workaholic. Like mm. I can, I definitely like my space and like my relaxation. I'm a classic tourist that way. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I, I do think like I, I'm one of those people who kind of tries to rise to meet the demands for sure. Mm-hmm. And I, I do, I don't fully know who I am when I don't have like a project. Right. Um, and working in publishing, working as an editor, you know, you know what this is like, Jen. I yeah. spent many years working pretty low paying jobs, um, working all the time. So many of your listeners, well, maybe at least a few will be familiar with like the toast, which is the first first website I edited for. And I want to stress, I loved that job and the team. Like it was great. I mean, I made a really low salary. I didn't have health insurance and I worked like probably 50 or more hours every week while parenting two young kids mm. um, without childcare. Cause we couldn't afford childcare at that point with what we were making. My husband was a postdoc. Um, I worked every vacation. I remember sending tweets from the beach. Yep. <laughs> like I just, you know, it was like, it was like a marathon two years really without a break. And um it was a little bit different when I moved to Catapult, but at first I was only making like a few thousand more than I made at the Toast. And I just thought, okay, this is the job. Like this is the job and ha- this is how I move up. And I mean, I want to move up. So if it seems like everybody else around you is working 50, 60 hours a week, answering emails all the time, you're going to absorb that culture, whether you're an innate workaholic or not. Um, so I don't actually know that I would have worked that much if it hadn't been so much a part of the culture right. in publishing, even indie publishing where I was working. Um, and that's not to point fingers at anyone. I mean, that's just the reality. Yeah. It's it's like, it's how you get started and how you move up in this industry. Um, so no, I wasn't any different, but I was doing it in these years, you know, while my kids were young, while my parents were struggling, while my dad was suffering. Yeah, so learning to reevaluate my relationship to work and to writing actually like trying to change my work situation so that I could write. Yeah. Because I mean, I think we all deserve grace and care and rest. And like, we just deserve those things base level. And at the same time, like I saw with this book, how when I got those things, when I allowed myself those things, like allowed myself to be an actual human being and not a machine. I mean, it did serve the work too. Um, I don't think it's the reason to do it. Yeah. Again, I think the reason is that we're human, yeah. <laughs> but I don't think this book would have come to be if I hadn't learned that. I don't think I would have been able to get through it. I mean, I am really grateful. I guess it was kind of a wake up call or maybe just like a slow cumulative realization over years. I'm not sure which, but I, I'm positive that if I had not changed my relationship to work, I mean, I would still be struggling with this manuscript. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can't, because push, sometimes pushing through it, it's, you're not going to get anything good. It's just right, like, right, it's, right. you'll get something, but it's not. You'll get words. Yeah, exactly. It wouldn't have been the right words. Yeah. Right, right. Um, one thing I want to talk about is what is your relationship to religion? You know, your parents were both deeply religious. Did religion play a role in your own grieving process at all? I mean, a little, a little bit. I, I don't really talk a lot about this, honestly, because I think, I think my relationship with religion is pretty fraught these days. And I also don't have any firm answers. Yeah. Like, I don't know what to tell people about it. I was raised in a very devoutly Catholic in that Catholic household. My parents converted to Orthodox Christianity after I left home. Mm -hmm. And my mother was a very, very devout person, especially. Um, I guess the, the main part it played in my, like both anticipatory grief when I knew, when I knew she was dying 
and also like afterward, you know, grieving both of them together. I guess the primary role you could say it played is what I wrote about in the book, sort of like their like their religious community, how much it meant to them and how um, how their little church was really there for them in the very worst times and how my very proud parents were able to accept like help and comfort from these people because they thought of them as family. So I write about like the one of their friends making my father's casket for free and the way everyone showed up, uh, like rallied around my mother when he died. And I wrote about uh, her friends in the parish and her priest, like visiting her faithfully while she was dying in the early weeks of the pandemic and how helpful her friends were to me in particular when my mother and I were struggling with like her final arrangements, advanced directives, uh, writing her will. I don't think any of that would have gotten done without her friend's support. You know, as, as one of her friends said to me, like, you know, you're still our kids and ultimately we want to protect you. Sometimes you need, you need to hear this from someone who's not your child. And so like, they really stepped in to like lovingly, but gently like help her get to a point where she could talk about those things and with me and with them and sort of make decisions while she still could. Yeah. Um, that was really very important. I mean, and I just don't know what, how that would have happened without their, their care and their support. So, you know, that's kind of how, how I think their religious community came into play for them. And I'm, I'm very grateful. Like I was and am very grateful that they had that community. Yeah. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but it does. It sounds like it sounds like it's complicated. It, <laughs> it sounds like I I too was raised Catholic and I I have lots of complicated feelings about it. You know, we yeah. talk about it sometimes. It's a I I learned a lot of guilt and shame from Catholicism, but also do recognize the community aspect of it and the purpose of it and the the feeling of belonging that comes along with it, you know? Yeah, I think I was lucky in that my parents were just not they were not really into guilt and shame, at least mm. with me. I mean, I think they felt a lot of guilt sometimes themselves. Yeah. Right. But like, I mean, and I know that that's very, those are very much elements of like um, of the church for many people, but it wasn't the part that was really stressed to me. Yeah. Um, so I feel lucky to have escaped that, but I've got plenty of other baggage. Right. And right. <laughs> it's just, you know, I, yeah, it's just hard because on the one hand, it would actually be easier if I felt nothing but like, like nothing but negative feelings yeah. about it. But I mean, I found, I still find like, I don't make it to mass hardly ever. But yeah. when I go, like, I'm still sucked into like that liturgy and like the rhythms and the yeah. prayers and like the feelings. And I sometimes just like cry because it makes me think about my parents. Yeah. Like when I'm really anxious and I can't sleep, like my mother told me to pray Hail Mary's and I still do that. Yeah. Mary is probably the only person I've prayed to in years, but like, I mean, I'm going to do that till I die. I can promise you that. And I don't even know what I think about it, but like the, there are just these things that like, I can't quite let go of, yeah. you know, um, I just have a really hard time with other things. So yes, it's complicated. It's complicated. No, I, 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 I too say the Lord's prayer before I go to bed at night because I do just, you really? I do. And it's because it's a, a, right before I go to sleep, I never really told anybody this. And it's just because it's something I did growing up. I just, I prayed when I was a kid and I still pray now. It's just, you know, I don't even, it's not even, it doesn't belong to any you know, larger religious structure. It's just, it's something that is just meditative for me almost. Um, Nicole, what else do you, what do you want to do next? What are you working on next? Um, 
<laughs> the dreaded question. Yeah, so, I know. Sorry. I, mean, I know. Okay. I love I love to ask it. Everybody always hates it. I'm sorry. Oh, it's okay. So I mean, of course, like I have my freelancing and I'm hoping yeah. to continue um writing. Actually, I know what my next book is. I'm co-editing a young adult anthology of stories by um all adoptees of color. Um oh, and that's so, great. Yeah. Yeah, it's my first book in like the young adult space. I'm hoping not my last, but that's out actually later this fall. So, you know, I'll, I'm sure things will start sort of gearing up there. And I, I really need to kind of get past that, I guess, and past the living remedy tour before, um, I think before I'll have just the mental space and energy to focus on like what's the next solo project. But. I don't, I don't think it'll be a memoir. I'm not sure I have another memoir in me. Right, I'm sh- right. I'm sh- like I'm shocked that I had two. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if it'll be a collection of essays, which I'd still really like to write. I would love to write a novel. Um, I've actually outlined one. So like, you know, we'll see. Yeah. But um, I, back to my changed relationship with work. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually trying not to put a lot of pressure on myself right now in the midst of tour. Yeah. Um, and with this other anthology coming up, you know, I'm trying to just be patient and see sort of where I'm led uh, and what feels most exciting and urgent to me once once I'm through some of these, um, I guess, big professional events. Because, yeah, I don't think I want to just like leap immediately into the next thing i mean famous last words because yeah i in the end i sold this book pretty quickly after the first but um i don't know i think whatever comes next needs a bit more time to percolate yeah absolutely so a living remedy is a is a gift and a bomb thank you so much for being on here today we really appreciate you coming on i'm really excited for people to read your book oh thank you so much i really appreciate the invitation it was nice to meet you both or see you both. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Everything is Fine. We are your hosts. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. If you like the show, like I said at the beginning of the, the episode, please join our Patreon at patreon.com backslash everything is fine. This supports the production of the show and it helps us keep the lights on. If you also want to support the show by giving us a five-star review, we read them on air often. Um, you could just go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're getting your podcasts. If you want to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram at EIF Podcast. We're on Facebook with a robust and private Facebook group. You can find us on Twitter. We're on LinkedIn. You can find Kim on her blog, girlsofacertainage.com. You can find me on tinyletter.com backslash Jennifer Romolini. The show is mixed and edited by the wonderful Natalie Rivera. Thank you again, Natalie. And we'll be back next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. 
From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover.